Well, hey, good morning again, and welcome to the teaching portion of our gathering. If you have a Bible, I want to invite you to turn to Philippians chapter 1. Just four short verses this morning, but so much to say, so much for us to learn from this passage. So hear these words from the Apostle Paul. Just one thing, live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or am absent, I will hear about you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind working side by side for the faith that comes from the gospel, not being frightened in any way by your opponents. This is a sign of destruction for them, but of your deliverance. And this is from God. For it has been given to you on Christ's behalf, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, having the same struggle that you saw I had, and now hear that I have. This is the reading of the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, if you'll remember, we're journeying through the book of Philippians as a part of our larger year focus, this annual priority we have called Wholehearted Community. What does it look like for us to grow in our ability to enjoy wholehearted relationships with other people and that being rooted in our wholehearted relationship with God, God's vision for wholeness that he has for his people? And this passage that we've come to this morning is really kind of the the epicenter. It's the key to understanding the entire book of Philippians. Most scholars actually would say, when Paul kind of opens up this verse 27 by saying just this one thing or what some translations are, whatever happens, that this is actually um, Paul kind of lifting a warning finger saying, hey, pay attention. This, this adverb here um, only, like literally says only this or this one thing. This is the reason why essentially Paul has penned this letter under house arrest to send back with Epaphroditus to the, the church there in Philippi. Is there's really one thing that I want you to know. So the rest of this letter kind of hinges on and really unpacks the ideas found really in verse 27, but verses 27 through 30. It's one long, kind of clumsy, grammatically clumsy, run-on sentence in the Greek, um, as Paul is prone to do when he gets excited about something. And so you could call this kind of the master thesis or the key kind of interpretive grid for the rest of the book of Philippians. And notice what Paul says, just this one thing. Live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, this uh, phrase here, live your life in a manner, okay, or conduct yourselves in a manner, some translations say, is really an unfortunate translation. Um, it's actually just one word in the Greek. It's a, it's a compound word. Uh, Polytuste is the Greek word. And it's a verb, uh, it's in verb form here, and it's in noun form, actually repeated again in chapter 3, verse 20. But this, this word here, the idea um, that the, the kind of the original piece of this, uh, the first piece of this is polis, from which we get our words political or politics. And when he says, conduct yourselves in a worthy manner of that translation, actually, for whatever reason I understand this, uh, kind of scrubs the political language or the political undertones or overtones in this passage. That word, um, polytuste, can mean... Um, live as citizens of, or it can mean uh, live as, as uh, part of a constitution or a state or a commonwealth, or the idea could be even in Philippians uh, 3, Paul says, you are a commonwealth, you are citizens of heaven, you are, um, as one translator says, a colony of heaven. And I know that word colony in our time, uh, colonization or to be colonized has some baggage, and we'll get there later. But I love the way that Gordon Fee uh, New Testament scholar, one of my favorite writers on Philippians says, 
his kind of translation is essentially live as citizens, that's the wording here, citizens or commonwealth or colony of the gospel of the king. Live in the Roman colony of Philippi as worthy citizens of your heavenly homeland. You are a colony of heaven, Paul is saying. That's literally what he says here. Not conduct yourselves. There's another word that Paul uses when he's talking about your conduct and your behavior. Here he's saying, live your whole life as if you are a colony of heaven. You are an outpost of the gospel of King Jesus in Philippi. And so I want us to dig in a little bit more on what does it mean for us to be a colony of heaven? That's the question, because we don't talk in terminology like of empire, and again, we're kind of even hesitant to think of ourselves as a colony now because it has such negative uh, connotations in our society. But I want to take you back and unpack this term because it was, a, it was a pregnant word full of rich meaning for the Apostle Paul and would have been received by the Philippians in a very particular and, and political way. And, and what Paul's saying here is subversive for uh, a Roman context. I want to t- walk you back through the sociopolitical context of Rome. Now, for just a quick history lesson here for the history nerds, uh, among us. Rome, if you remember, was the global military superpower of the day. They literally ruled their empire, stretched from, uh, from England all the way to India. And kind of the, the basic thesis of the Roman Empire was, we are bringing Pax Romana to the rest of the world. We are literally bringing, the idea of Pax Romana, the peace of Rome in Latin, is that we are bringing salvation to the ends of the earth. There's no other name, no other empire under heaven. It literally was a mantra uh, in that day by which men can be saved except through Rome, except through the empire. And if you think about it, in that time, uh, which was filled with all kinds of wars and tribalism and violence, this was actually, in many people's minds, a significant upgrade to what was happening uh, in lots of what came to be known as the Roman Empire. Rome kind of conceived of themselves as bringing an end to wars and to tribalism, bringing unity to these kind of different nation states and and cities, bringing Roman justice and law and order in the midst of lawlessness and disorder and chaos. They brought a civil infrastructure that led to financial prosperity, right? I think about the technology of things like roads, which became, you know, kind of what we think of in modernity as roads for business and travel, Um, and all the technology there. Um, The Pax Romana was viewed as salvific. It brought salvation to the world. At 42 BC, as it relates to Philippi, um, Octavian, who was uh, the Caesar, the emperor at that time, um, he conferred a colony status on Philippi. It was the site of his famous victory, if you learned about the assassination of Julius Caesar, who was Octavian's adopted father. It was actually his uncle, his great uncle, um, the, the site of this famous military battle with Brutus and these senators and kind of revenging for uh, Julius Caesar was Philippi. And so they were granted colony status, which was a huge thing, right? A colony is essentially granted the same legal status as Rome, even though for Philippi, they're not located in Italy. They were located in Greece in the Macedonian region. And so essentially to be a colony was to have all the rights and the privileges and the same uh, governing principles Uh, as Rome itself. Roman citizens were granted tax exemptions and human rights protections and access to courts and law. Uh, And there was this fierce loyalty to the emperor because of um, this colony status. A lot of military veterans had been relocated to Philippi, and they were devoted. I mean, there was literally a worship. The imperial cult arose in places like Philippi um, and was spreading all over the empire. 
They worship the emperor as, literally, this is the language, the son of God and the Lord and Savior of mankind. So the, the idea with the colony was you were, you were charged with bringing Roman culture to bear on the larger Mediterranean and kind of Macedonian region. So the idea was a colony existed to, to spread Roman culture, to Romanize the world by spreading her music and her literature and her language and her ideologies and values and justice and law and order and the arts, right? You're spreading Roman culture and spreading loyalty and this devotion, this worship to the Caesar as Lord and Savior. And so when Paul says that with that kind of as the background in your mind, now you go back to hear Paul say this through that sociopolitical kind of cultural lens, live as a colony of the gospel of the king, live as a colony of heaven, live as citizens of the good news that Jesus is Lord. I mean, it's a very dangerous and subversive thing. I mean, you see throughout the book of Philippians, Paul is borrowing, and I don't have time to get into this, but I want to throw it up on a slide for you. Paul is borrowing with his language and his thought concepts and his frameworks the language of the Greco-Roman Empire, and he is intentionally subverting it, and he's redeeming it and saying, you know these concepts to mean this in the Greco-Roman Empire. This is actually what it means to live with an ultimate allegiance and an ultimate loyalty to King Jesus now that you've been brought into this new kingdom, this new empire with new laws and a new government and new administration. He uses words that are Roman words. Again, we think of these as Christian words, but they actually are rooted in a Roman context, a Greco-Roman context. Words like euangelion, the gospel, kyrios, Lord. I mean, to say Lord in those days was to say Caesar is Kyrios, soteria, salvation, irene, peace, pistis, faith or trust, dikaios, justice or righteousness, perusia, the presence of the emperor. These are all Roman words that Paul draws on, I think, to make a, a, a political point, like a literal political point. Um, Paul's point is he's reframing their understanding of citizenship. Like we often don't think about citizenship. Like our, if you're a, a natural born American citizen, you don't think about the rights and privileges and what it really means to have access to things that in large swaths of the world, people don't have citizenship. They don't have access or friends and neighbors who've immigrated here who don't have access and have to go through lengthy processes to get access to these basic rights that we often take for granted. Paul is reframing those in light of the kingdom of God now that they've responded, now that you've responded to the good news of Jesus' rule and reign by grace alone, through faith alone, you've now come into this political community. I mean, that's essentially what he's saying. Jesus is now your Lord and Savior. Caesar is not your ultimate Lord and Savior. Jesus is your king, your emperor, and you are now citizens of another empire. The church, Paul says, is a political community gathered under King Jesus. Our city charter is the story of his life and his death and his resurrection, which he's going to go on to unpack in chapter 2, this great hymn uh, that would have been uh, widely known in the early Christian community. This is your city charter. Fulfill your obligation as citizens of this new reign and rule of God, not by avoiding your obligations to Rome and to Philippi's citizens. He's not saying that. But the, the emphasis in the book of Philippians is live out this, I'll just call this this counter-imperial story of Jesus' love, the unity that he wants for us as his people, justice, humility. Live this out in the church, first and foremost, but also live this out 
in the world. Literally, this is like the Lord's Prayer. This is exactly what Paul is saying here. Your kingdom come, your will be done in Philippi as it is in heaven, in Indianapolis, in America, in the West as it is in heaven. Spread the culture of heaven. Don't don't worry about spreading the culture of Rome. You worry about, first and foremost, spreading the culture of heaven and not dying one day and going to heaven, but actually bringing heaven to earth in the here and the now. I love the way that, uh, that New Testament scholar Michael Gorman says this in his interpretation of this passage. He says, live faithfully now, not some future uh, in the by and by, but now as a colony of citizens of that heavenly imperial city. In the midst of this colony of Rome, your Lord and Savior, your emperor is Jesus, whose cruciform pattern of faith and love and power and hope is the city charter of your colony. And as you live by this charter, do so in unity, for you must be one as you face persecution together for the sake of Christ, just as I, Paul, am imprisoned, though the gospel we sing, preach, and live is not. This is the idea of being a colony of heaven. It's to live in a certain kind of tension or paradox, right? And and I'll just kind of mention this, and then we'll move on to applying this. I think the paradox for us is we live as a colony of heaven, a city, a, a heavenly city within this earthly city that we call America, that we call Philippi, that we call Indianapolis. Um, there's this paradox of both protest and participation that I think Paul is drawing on throughout his letters and specifically here in, um, in, the, in the book of Philippians, in this letter to the Philippian church. Um, and this tension is something that, I don't know if you've experienced this, if you've ever lived in a different city. I, I'll just give like a really benign example. This is like totally silly, but uh, as, a, as, a, as a person who grew up in Kentucky, I am a Kentucky and I'm a Louisvillian, right? And there's a way to say that. It's not Louisville, it's Louisville. Um, and as a person who grew up in Louisville, my heart and my affection, my homeland, you could say, is Louisville. I am a Kentuckian through and through. I went to the University of Kentucky. I did all of my formative years in Kentucky. And as a Kentuckian, you grow up with a certain kind of hostility towards anything north of the river, right? Like anything Indiana, anything Hoosier. I know you guys look down on us as, you know, as like rednecks. We look down on y'all as hillbillies, or maybe that's reversed. You look at us as hillbillies, we look at you as rednecks, whatever. But uh, there's a certain kind of tension that exists there. And, and as a Louisvillian, as a Kentuckian who relocated here, I live in this tension uh, now as a Hoosier of kind of protest and participation. My, my act of protest is I will never root for the University of Indiana. I will never, I, I literally can't do it. And if you're an Indiana fan, I'm sorry. It is just against like my like civil religion in Kentucky that I cannot root for the Hoosiers. So I, I, I protest by rooting for Butler. I live in Butler's neighborhood and I root for the Butler Bulldogs. And when they're playing Indiana, I'm all, I'm all in with the Butler Bulldogs. And so I have a certain amount of protest. There's just certain things I can't do here certain ways I have to live as an alternative. My family lives in an, as an alternative city. Adam Ringo, the Ringos and the Shields as, as co-conspirators. We have to live as an alternative city within the city of Indianapolis as Hoosiers. But we're also called to participate. We participate. We go to ball games. We participate in the festivals and the different things that are happening here in Indianapolis. And we've really come to enjoy actually living in the city. It, it has come over time to feel like a second home for us. And we feel free to affirm all of the good and beautiful things, uh, whether it's coffee or food or, uh, you know, being able to bike around in our neighborhood or just certain privileges that come along with and blessings that come along with living in this city in this time. 
Um, it's this kind of mixture of protest and participation. Now, that's a goofy example, and the stakes are much higher. And what Paul's talking about is we live as citizens of heaven in uh, the midst of our earthly city. It is this combination. To live as a colony of heaven, um, as an analogy, is to live in this tension, in this paradox. We live in two polises. We live in two cities. We live in two, um, two commonwealths. So on the one hand, our greatest allegiance, so we're talking protest now, our greatest allegiance is to the crucified King Jesus, to his way of life, to his kingdom, to his rule and his reign. He has granted status on us. He's brought us into his family. He's transferred us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, and we are now sons and daughters of the king, brothers and sisters of Jesus, the spirit of God, the spirit of the risen Jesus living in us. He is our Lord. And for us, that has to mean something beyond just the way we kind of think of the gospel as it individually saves our souls. It has massive subversive implications for how we engage in this world. This means that for us as Christians, no Caesar, no empire, no president, no party, no ideology, no cultural institution, be that big like the government and the state or small like an athletic league, like nothing in between should dominate our loyalty and our time and our attention and our energy and our money or our service in a manner that distracts us or pulls us away from practicing the way of Jesus together as a subversive political community, the church. Our lives as believers, as we follow the way of King Jesus, will always be, as this letter is, a form of political protest. And it will bring us into tension with the dominant values and practices, and you could call them loves, of other empires. And I think particularly in how we handle things like money and sexuality, and power. Those tend to be kind of some of the tip of the spear for how our, our, our cultural narratives clash and bring tension. And Paul specifically says here, you will encounter suffering. Don't be frightened by your opponents. If you live out the way of Jesus as this alternative community, you are going to come into tension and experience hostility and opposition and suffering. And that's, that's what Paul experienced. And he's saying, we're going to experience the same thing. Now, the gospel that got Paul in trouble and put under house arrest um, it's really interesting, and I think we should pay attention to this because we often miss this. Uh, the gospel that Paul preached was not how we often think of the gospel now. Like, and, and it's not that this is wrong, but it's just it's incomplete, right? Um, what got Paul put under house arrest, what got Paul beaten and humiliated and unjustly in prison was not simply the gospel that Jesus died, that he rose from the dead, and if you believe in him and trust in him for the forgiveness of your sins, you'll be saved and you'll go to heaven when you die. Like actually in the Roman Empire, which was a pluralistic and tolerant religious culture, they would have had no problem with that. Great, worship Jesus. We'll add him to the pantheon of all these other gods and goddesses, uh, Zeus and you know uh, uh, these different gods and goddesses that they would have been familiar with and offered their worship to. That would not have been a threat. That would not have been treason in the Roman Empire. What got Paul in trouble was when Paul began to say, not only did Jesus die to save our souls, Jesus died to bring a kingdom. That Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. That, that altering of our loyalty, that shift of our loyalty and our practices away from the practices of the empire and, and how we live as, and how they lived as citizens in the, in the Roman Empire, that is what got Paul in trouble. 
If you want to read an example of those charges, go to Acts chapter 17, and you can actually read that what got Paul put in prison was the fact that he was saying that Caesar was not Lord and that there was another emperor, another king that had come into the world that had claims that superseded those of the divine sovereign Caesar. When Paul refused to worship the empire and he encouraged other people to do the same, when he refused to participate in the festivals of the empire, when he started to mess with the economic and social power structures of the day, when he started calling out the immorality of governors and kings and, and these different, um, these different political leaders, that's treason in the Roman Empire. And that's what got Paul in big time trouble. And I would say, if you're living in the world as a citizen of heaven, this, Paul says, is exactly the same thing that we should expect. Matter of fact, if you're, I mean, Jesus said the same thing, right? Like, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. And I would say, if you're living in the world and you're living in this tension, trying to figure out how do I know if I'm living faithfully into this tension, if you're never experiencing this kind of opposition, you probably are doing it wrong. You've probably allowed yourself to be co-opted by other rival stories and rival gospels, or there's parts of you that you're keeping compartmentalized and hidden, and you're not living publicly in the way of Jesus, because it always brings us into tension, just as it did then, into tension now with these dominant narratives. So protest is a piece, but that's not everything. We're not just all protest. We're not just all against. We're not just all antithesis or withdrawal. Being an alternative city also means that we participate, right? We participate, and, and we don't live in a constant state of being against or seeking to withdraw from, maybe in a previous generation, or I would even say maybe for our younger generation now, um, being an alternative community doesn't mean we, we're always trying to burn the empire to the ground. The empire is imperfect, and we live in this tension, but what I'd say, if you look at the life of Paul, Paul has this ability to participate and to acknowledge his citizenship and to use that in ways to advance the gospel. He uses his citizenship in the book of Acts um, to engage political leaders with the gospel, and even at times to protect his own life. He appeals to Caesar to keep from being killed. He tells Christians in Romans to uh, pay their taxes, to honor this imperfect, broken system of justice that's ordained by God. He tells Christians in the book of Philippians to affirm what's good and what's beautiful and what's just as we see it in the world. Jesus tells us that we are sent into the world to seek the welfare, uh, Jeremiah 29 says, of the city, to love our neighbor as ourselves. And so I would say on the other side of the tension, if you're always against, if you're always critiquing, if you're always protesting, but you're never able to participate, you're never able to affirm, you're never, never able to see the good and discern the good, um, if we're always critiquing, always deconstructing without uh, participation, we probably allowed ourselves to be co-opted by other stories. And so I think as Christians, we should be the best citizens of America, like in our current context. Being a Christian should mean we're the best citizens, not the worst. We're the best citizens in the way that I think uh, Paul would have us to be because we're citizens of the kingdom of God, because we understand that there is another kingdom coming, a kingdom of love and grace and mercy and justice. We ought to live and be the best citizens here in America. Now, how do we actually do this? What does it look like for us to live into this? Paul says, he goes on to write, And the rest of this passage, live in a manner worthy or conduct yourselves in a manner or live as citizens of a colony of heaven in a way that's worthy of the gospel of Jesus. Then when I come and see you or I'm absent, I will hear about you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, working side by side, the end of that verse there in 27, for the faith that comes from the gospel. 
the way that we live this out is in community together. Paul says we do this together by pursuing unity in love. And that's going to be fleshed out in the remainder of the book. What does it look like for us to stand side by side, to contend together for the gospel in unity, but to do it with a spirit like Jesus, the cruciform pattern of, of the risen uh, Jesus, with love, with this sense of self-giving. And this is really hard work, and that's why Paul uses athletic imagery. That's why Paul uses uh, the language of athletes and soldiers. This language here he would have borrowed from both the arena, right, where you're contending and engaging in athletic contests, and, and from uh, a military context, actually, something many soldiers in that town would have been familiar with. He says, stand firm, strive. You're going to be vindicated. You're going to be uh, delivered. You're going to be victorious. And the idea here is that we as a community, as followers of Jesus, are side by side with a common purpose, a common mind, a common spirit, the spirit of God at work in us, advancing the good news of Jesus as this counter-imperial political community. And we need that encouragement, right? We need, like they needed the encouragement from Paul to say, hey, keep going. You've seen me do this. You need to keep going. And we too as a community, if we're going to be wholehearted, if we're going to resist cynicism and despair and walk, walk in this paradox and tension of, of protest and participation, we need to encourage one another. But I believe we also need each other because we've got to um, we had, to, we had to understand that formation and growth in the way of Jesus, like living as citizens of heaven in the earthly city, can never be done alone. Like we need each other. Paul had to call the Philippians in the midst of their own brokenness to see that they were living in a contested space. That, that, that paradox is a contested space. It's not a neutral space. And they had been formed and shaped, and they were living um, and oftentimes had kind of uncritically assimilated what I'll call the rites of the empire, the rhythms, the liturgies of the empire into their community. They brought those things with them that they had learned in Philippi into the church. They don't just magically like disappear. You don't get zapped by the spirit when you become a follower of Jesus. And all of a sudden it's like, oh, I just erased all that, like the matrix. And God has downloaded like, you know, Christianity into my soul. And now I start living in this way. No, they had these rival stories in their imagination. They had these liturgies, these practices that were seeking to orient their loves towards this pagan vision of the good life that were still in them and had to be worked out. And that's why we need each other. We need each other to see what it looks like to be formed into the image of Jesus and where we're falling short in this contested space. That, uh, that kind of formation, that contested formation would have happened in Rome in very like big ways and very subtle ways, just as it does kind of in our own day, right? There was uh, kind of imperial prop- uh, propaganda or cultural formation that was at work in Philippi and would have worked at multiple levels on uh, a, your average Philippine that grew up there in Philippi who had now been converted to Jesus. That happened at this kind of governmental and religious, which they didn't make those distinctions as we do. They were kind of one and the same in uh, ancient Rome. Uh, through the imperial cult, right, the imperial worship of the Caesar with priests and temples and festivals, that would have been very obvious, but it was also at work in kind of the social and institutional levels, right? They had these industry guilds and these social clubs that brought about a certain amount of social capital and ascribed social norms to people and, and gave people access to benefits and privileges and rights. I mean, think about like in our day, these would be things like uh, YPO organizations or social media influencer groups or these informal networks where we all know like the, the real deals are made and people are hired. Um, and so it's obvious to us as we look back in retrospect because of some of the sharp contrast between the blatant violence and the greed and the authoritarianism of Rome and the way of Jesus. It's easy for us to go, yeah, like that should be resisted. 
But I would argue that what's not so obvious to us now is that we also, as American Christians, as they did in Philippi, we live in contested space. We too have been formed and deformed in ways that are not aligned with the way of Jesus. And it's more subtle to us because many of the core ideas, um, ideas like freedom and human dignity and human rights and freedom of speech, these ideas, not the realization of these ideas, I'm not saying the realization, this has been realized in our liberal democracy, but a lot of the ideas undergirding the Enlightenment and thus our modern liberal, liberal democracy in America find their roots in Judaism and in Christianity. So we live in, I don't think a Christian nation, I think that's the wrong way to put it, but we live in this kind of civil religion or this Christ-haunted society that is very much, just like it was in Rome, a contested space of formation with its own matrix or, matrix or set of rival stories and liturgies and practices that are just as secular as Rome. And even some of them, under the guise of being Christian, under the guise of being biblical, are just as secular and hollowed out as they were in Rome. And they aim at orienting our loves, our desires, and our longings towards a pagan or a secular vision of the good life. For us, it looks like um, wanting the kingdom, the fruit of Christianity, without wanting the king. And so we're always being formed, we're always being shaped, we're always being, you could call it, discipled within this political context. And by political, I mean it in the sense of like polis, like this city, this, this social context. I don't just mean like election days, like this craziness we're living in now, or legal processes, or Supreme Court justices. I mean political as they meant it, as a way of life, like we have been shaped as a way of life. And and we have to recognize this, right? Jamie Smith in his book, Awaiting the King, which is a kind of a political theology, he says this, when we fail to recognize the liturgical nature of our public institutions as liturgical bodies, we also fail to recognize their deformative, deformative power. The state is not just a neutral, benign space that I can stride into with my ideas and beliefs. The state isn't just the guardian of rights. It is also a nexus of rights that are bent on shaping what is most fundamental, my loves. The state doesn't just ask me to make a decision, it asks me to pledge allegiance. Governing isn't just something you do, it does something to you. The rights of the earthly city are not only managed by the state or government, the ethos of the polis is fostered in stadiums and arenas too. The political is wider than government. We are all being shaped, we are all being formed and deformed all the time or reformed, either into the image of Caesars, various Caesars or would-be kings with their own stories and narratives, or into the image of Jesus. And so I want to encourage you um, two things here, just as we think about applying this to our own lives right now. How do we, how do we embrace this vision of being formed uh, into the image of Jesus in the way that Paul is calling us, in a way that is subversive, right? This, this paradox of protest and participation. How do we as the church operate in this space and pursue formation in this contested space? First thing, I think we have to acknowledge the specific ways we've been deformed, right? We have to be honest about the ways that we have been deformed. Um, we have what might be called in America a godfather problem, right? You think about Michael Corleone in the movie Godfather. I don't know if you have watched that. I'm old, whatever. But uh, in The Godfather, Michael Corleone, there's this contrast throughout The Godfather of him as a church religious man and him as like a mob boss. And there's one prescient scene that brings together this tension when his sister asked him to become the godfather of uh, her son, his, his nephew. 
And there's this panning back and forth in this brilliant kind of way between uh, this process of him reciting the creed. Do you believe in God the Father, almighty maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only begotten son, and the Holy Spirit? Do you renounce the works of the devil? And Corleone is saying, yes, yes, yes. And it's panning back to show the violence and the murder and all of the things he's doing that are in direct contradiction to um, what he's stating in reciting the creed in the church. And we can oftentimes have the same uh, problems as the church. We can renounce the works of the devil, and we can say with our theology, we can say with our lips one thing, and yet participate in these very works through a process of cultural assimilation and conformity, right? And if, if the evangelical church uh, is, is, has been guilty in the past of colonizing other cultures, and that has happened to be sure, um, our biggest struggle now, I think, as a church, and has been over that same period of time, is to realize how we've been colonized, not just how we've colonized, but how we've been colonized by our own social context, both our secular context, but I would even argue the context of the church, our religious context, have done just as much colonizing with secular ideas as the larger secular society in which we find ourselves. And by the way, this is not just an American problem, right? If you've lived outside of America, you know this is a global historical church problem. If you don't believe me, watch the movie The Mission about how... uh, how the church can get militarized. Um, I think about historical examples of the German church under the National Socialism, the Rwandan genocides, which were perpetuated in large parts by political divisions in the church, the apartheid that uh, happened in the Dutch Reformed Church of South Africa. I mean, this is a global problem. And so we need to recognize that just as much as we are forming and shaping, we are being formed and deformed away from the way of Jesus. And so the question we need to ask ourselves on a regular basis, I believe, is how am I being formed? How am I being deformed? How am I being discipled? Not just up here with like false worldviews, which is what we tend to think of like false information, and that's definitely a part of it, but I would say more at the heart level, the level of our loves, our affections, our desires. How are we being discipled in our guts by the stories and the practices of our social context? right? Like, we need to take a look around us and to see what are the stories that are guiding me? What are the institutions that are shaping me? Um, and, and as we look at those things, there's going to be some things that we can affirm as good and right and, and evidences of common grace and God's providence in our lives. But there's also a lot of sinful idolatries mixed in there that need to be acknowledged and resisted and repented of and renounced if we're going to be formed into the way of Jesus. Paul talks about some of these throughout the book of Philippians. I mean, it's so helpful, right? He talks about how cultural identity, like uh, a healthy love for our culture or our, our country or different things, can actually lead us to uh, a kind of nationalism. And he actually res- he resists that. Like, um, there's nothing wrong, Paul says, with appreciating your culture, your background, where you came from, whether that's, you know, in his case, being a Jew or being a Gentile. But if we elevate that and we exalt that, to a level that's unhealthy, we can then fall into um, an inappropriate love, an out-of-control love that leads us to be violent towards other cultures, towards other people, towards other groups, and can lead us to places that are very dangerous when we elevate our cultural identity, who we see is in our circle at the expense of loving the foreigner, the alien, the widow, the marginalized, the vulnerable, right, that don't share those identities with us. He talks about power, right? And so we need to look at different ways that 
or being shaped by visions of power that come from the marketplace, right, with capitalism, or that come from the military and how we think about the military. Again, I'm for these things. These can be helpful ways to secure public justice in the world. But power out of control, if we just look at it through the lens of power and expansion and dominance, we can fall into pagan ways of relating to power that use power to exploit, to dominate, to oppress, rather than to liberate and to uh, pursue justice. We, he talks about uh, in the book Justice, whatever's just, whatever's righteous, Paul says, pursue and think about and live into those things. And I think about um, how we're being shaped right now by different visions of justice. I mean, justice is the conversa- conversation du jour right now in our society. And we have different, a spectrum of ways that people are being shaped and formed to think about justice. On the one hand, there's kind of individualism, right? Like um, kind of a way to think about, you know, Justice is just personal responsibility. We need to protect, our, uh, protect and maximize and exercise our personal responsibility to maximize our freedoms. And justice is really about protecting individuals, right? Um, versus on the other side, collectivism, which is all about rights. So you have responsibilities on the one side, personal responsibility and rights on the other side. And collectivism sees everything through the lens of social structures that are shaping us and and we need to be protected from evil social structures. And, and so it leads to all of this back and forth between different competing secular visions of justice, right? And we, we hear words thrown out like intersectionality and critical race and law and order, and we live in cancel culture. Both sides struggle with this, cancel culture. And I would argue that both actually, in, a, in different ways, both sides of the spectrum end up emphasizing retribution and punishment, punishment and a rage without redemption, but they miss the restorative and redemptive aspects of justice. Justice isn't just about punishing wrong or canceling people. It is about restoring people. It is about, in the Christian vision, about forgiveness and reconciliation. And there can be none of that if we don't have a biblical vision of shalom, a biblical vision of justice, of being reconciled to God, of seeing Jesus as the just one and the justifier who laid down his life and gave himself up for us and our sins and reconciled us back to God and to one another. And so again, we see how we've been shaped by those, how we've been shaped to think about money. Paul talks about economics, right? And, and again, like capitalism, uh, you know, we think about consumerism, we think about socialism and these different economic theories and trends that are shaping the way that we think about the world, but are often unhooked and unhinged from uh, the biblical narrative and the biblical story and biblical practices. And so capitalism can become competition. It can become a scarcity mentality. It can become about me maximizing my own profit at the expense of of others, right? It can become um, just this exploitative thing. Socialism can, can uh, kind of have this unhealthy togetherness, right, that, that uh, is oftentimes naive and we see in other places leads to its own version of oppression. And so we're being shaped, though, by these narratives, sports. And like sports, if you're a parent, you're being shaped by narratives uh, with youth sports and youth athletic leagues and practices that lead to a certain way of being in the world. And my point in all this is saying we have to learn to recognize, to call these out, to do the cultural exegesis, the cultural work of understanding how we're being formed and deformed together in this context. And to call those things out and say that is not the way of Jesus. That is not what Jesus has for us. We need to um, have this prophetic humility. We talk about being prophets and speaking truth to power. Um, and, I, and I'm all for that in the right kind of way, in the right kind of context. But what if we speak the truth to ourselves and we have a prophetic humility to look inside ourselves first before shaking our fists at the world 
um, and raging without redemption. We look inside and we, and we have this, what one author calls the purging of the Christian imagination. We purge our own hearts first. We look inward. We examine ourselves. We repent. We turn away. We seek repair. We seek to repair what's gone wrong. And we seek to restore and reconcile as we move out into the world. We have to see how we've been deformed. And then secondly and quickly, we have to also then cultivate. It's not enough just to see the negative. We have to positively, actively cultivate our heavenly citizenship together for the good of the world. And this is where I believe the church has such, so much to offer. It's such a compelling offer for human flourishing, such potential. Yes, we have a Godfather problem, but Jesus is redeeming us, and the context for that happens within the community of faith. This is why I think the church holds so much potential for human flourishing. Where else are we going to go to learn what it looks like to be fully human, right? To learn what it looks like to handle power, to do justice, to love mercy, to handle our money in ways and our sexuality in ways that lead towards human flourishing and not away from human flourishing. The distortion of that in times past doesn't negate the reality of what God's doing in the present. Yes, we fail, and yes, we falter as the church, but where else are we going to cultivate the kinds of virtues, the vision, the story that we need to live into love? and wholeness and flourishing. And I believe this is what the good news of Jesus has for us. It holds out the possibility of repentance, of confession, of growth, of change, and ultimately, one day, the final redemption and the coming of Jesus to make all things new. And this is what I think Paul's after in the church, is us learning to become this community of cruciformity, being conformed to the image of Christ. And he gives all of these liturgies of love, right? Like, talks about unity and humility and self-giving and self-sacrifice that are rooted in this gospel pattern of a crucified, self-giving God who empties himself, who dies on the cross to cancel the demonic powers. I would argue the ultimate, like, cancel culture is Jesus canceling the powers of evil that are working against us, that are animating the hostility and the violence and the domination and the greed and exploitation and the oppression that we experience as human beings in our relationships with one another And Jesus dies and he rises again and he creates this new community, the spirit-empowered political community to live out the reality of the kingdom on earth. That is what we are doing, church. When we gather together to worship, when we enter into the worship of our one true God, we are claiming our allegiance to Jesus as our one true king. No other Caesar is Lord. When we get baptized, we're dying to an old way of life. We're renouncing and resisting this demonic way of living. We're being baptized into a new kingdom. That's what's happening in teaching is we are learning the content of ethics and what it means to live in a virtuous society. When we confess our sins, when we take communion, when we practice generosity, when we learn that power is not used, power is not evil in and of itself, power can be redeemed. And Jesus shows us what it looks like to redirect power for the common good, to live with God's vision of justice and wholeness, to embrace an appropriate cultural identity that's rooted in Jesus and then makes an impact on our other secondary identities. That's what we're doing as we come together to practice as the church. When we come together and we even have our sense of time reframed in the church calendar with Advent and Lent and these different seasons, we are learning what it looks like to cultivate our heavenly citizenship. That is what it looks like to live as the people of God, as a community of faith, as a counter-imperial political community. And man, I think this Our world desperately needs this, and this is what Jesus has for us. He wants to reshape our loves, reshape our desires, and to help us live in this tension, in the new imagination for the kingdom of God. We live as a colony of heaven, as a city of heaven, in the midst of the colony of America, in the midst of the colony of 
the United States here and Indianapolis and our neighborhoods and our families and our churches. What a compelling vision for the church. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for uh, your goodness. I thank you for this word that you have called us to live as citizens of heaven in the midst of this earthly city, the city of God in the midst of the city of man. God, you are designed for us to be this counter-imperial culture working for the good while resisting those things that are evil, resisting those things that are unjust. And God, we know that we must experience that transformation in our own lives if we're going to be able to give that to other people. And so God, I pray that you would do a deep work in us, that you would call our attention to ways um, that we are being deformed, being discipled um, into uh, the wrong vision, into a secular vision of what it means to flourish. And God, would you reshape us, reform us in community, in relationships with one another, help us to speak the truth in love, first to ourselves and then to one another. And God, help us to cultivate, to work hard at this vocation, this calling, this discipleship project of being formed into the image of Christ, that story becoming our story, that identity becoming our identity, those practices becoming our way of life, first with one another here in the church, and then as we move out into the world to seek the welfare of the city. God, would you reshape our imagination, do a deep work of renewal in your church to bring about your good purposes in the world. We cannot do this apart from you. And so we pray these things and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.